Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Gayatri Rajan, Chief Product Officer at Drivewealth. Drivewealth is a fractional investing and brokerage infrastructure leader that provides the infrastructure for platforms like Cash App, Revolut, Chipper Cash and Toss Securities. Before joining Drivewealth, Gayatri spent over a decade at Google supporting product development. including scaling pan google payments and creating a new local ads business from apps gayatri holds degrees in chemical engineering and computer science as well as an mba join me as we explore the world of fractional investing the recent surge in first time investors what motivated gayatri to transition from software giant to a late stage startup how to identify the right product fit why gayatri finds b2b products more exciting than b2c products and much more Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Gayatri, good morning. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Hi Tarang, thank you for having me. So, how are you and where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Chicago. It's a cloudy day today and I'm but I'm doing well. That's good to know. And before the interview started you mentioned you had a Wharton connection. Can you can you touch upon that? Yes, I actually came to the US because of Wharton. My husband was a professor at Wharton back in the 90s in accounting. And so many of my fondest memories in those early days was eating at your food trucks on Walnut. So um, I definitely treasure my early years um, at Wharton. That's so cool. Do you miss the University City and Huntsman Hall? Huntsman Hall was just being built around the time I actually remember John Huntsman when he made the gift. I do miss Philadelphia. It's a lovely city. All right, so let's dive right in. For our listeners who may not know about you, could you touch upon the overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? So I've had a career that spanned almost three decades now, and um, it's been across both chemical engineering as well as technology. But across my career, the singular theme has been that I've been really focused on building products. I started by making detergents at Unilever. and i realized very quickly that much as i loved the company and i was living in holland so that was uh, that was pretty cool too i was having minimal impact detergents industry is is a mature industry and you can spend years making incremental improvements so i realized that i wanted to go into industries and markets that were on the cusp of change and that's why i went to google and spent almost half of my career there at a time when google was remaking web search and creating mobile ecosystems and is also the reason why i'm here now in fintech because this is where it's all happening so from 15 years at google where you led the building of google's unified payments platform as well as the google maps enterprise business to the cpo at a late stage startup how did you make this transition and why did you make this transition i wanted to join a rocket ship but um frankly If you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said I probably am going to retire at Google. It's an incredible company to work for. It's a generation-defining company, and for me, it was a career-defining one. As a founding member of Google, Google's payments platform that processes Google's revenue, I built a platform that was catering at that point to eight billion in revenue when we started. and has scaled to 200 billion plus in revenue when i worked on uh, google maps and to build out their enterprise business i scaled the business 3x over 4 years 
So all this to say, over the course of my time at Google, I had built the skill set and learned how to scale products and businesses. And so when I saw the opportunity at DriveWell, where the products had really great product market fit, but they were now in a position where they needed to scale, I knew that I could add value. And I also knew that I could learn a lot in the process. So it was an easy decision to make. So let's talk about Drive Wealth. And can you tell us a bit more about what the company does and what services or products it offers? So Drive Wealth is a pioneer in fractional investing. So what do I mean by that? This is um, being able to invest in fractions of shares rather than whole shares. So rather than buying a share of your favorite stock, you can buy a dollar, a dollar's worth. And if you think about it, whole shares really limited access to a lot of investors, particularly first-time investors, investors outside of the US. By pioneering fractional investing, we really unlocked access now to many, many investors worldwide and have essentially helped spark the retail investing revolution. Drywall is an embedded finance play. So we don't work directly with the investors. We work through partners who then in turn help deliver investing in the palm of your hand. So uh, what we found is our services not just help support access and open up access to investors with fractional investing and the technology that powers it, our partners have been able to redefine the investing experience for their users. They can take our APIs and create products like stock roundups where you can invest your spare change when you buy a cup of coffee in in the stock. So this is un, you know this has never been done before and this could never have happened without uh, without fractional investing. Um, we also our services allow our partners to customize their investing experiences depending on what their users need, right? So if you want to create uh, if you need to support investors who want a managed investing service, we have services that enable that. Interesting. So as you mentioned, DriveWell pioneered this fractional investing model, right? And I know you partner with a number of organizations to pioneer the access to U.S. markets in some countries. Can you talk to me about some recent partnerships and how did you pick these partners and the countries that you want to enter? It's a great question. So we work with more than 100 global fintechs, and these include Cash App in the U.S., Revolut in Europe, Chippa Cash in Nigeria, and many, many more. And the way we thought about our partnerships was really trying to understand what our partners were aiming to do, right? What were the user segments they wanted to serve and how we could help unlock investing services for them. We have, um, I think, at this point, something pretty special, which is the product, the platform that we offer is globally available, right? So we can take the platform that we have and scale it in markets outside of the US while recognizing and ensuring that we're meeting the regulatory postures in these different markets. So in many ways, what has informed our international strategy is really understanding our partner needs in a given market and ensuring that we can best support them. Can you talk to us about, you know, who are DriveWell's key clients or users and who are your biggest competitors, if any? So um, 
in, we supported 12 million investors worldwide. And in addition to the names that I mentioned, uh, we have others such as SproutFi in Latin America, uh, who, off, who use our investing services in a community-oriented mobile experience and have been able to unlock access to U.S. securities in the LATAM market, something that was never possible before. In terms of our competition, we have other players now who have, uh, who have started to offer the services that we pioneered. But when I think about it, it's good to have competition. But what I obsess more about is our differentiation. We are, as pioneers of fractional investing, we offer real-time trading of fractional shares via cloud-based APIs. And in the backend, we offer both self-clearing and multi-clearing brokerage services that has access to a multitude of execution venues. So as we continue to evolve our differentiation, I believe we will continue to provide the best services and experiences for our partners globally. On that note, another interesting piece of news is that DriveWealth recently celebrated its 10th anniversary. Can you tell us a bit more about how retail investing has changed from the time that DriveWealth was launched till now? And what do we have in store for the next 10 years? So we're literally on the cusp of change. If you think about retail investing previously, whole shares, the need to buy whole shares, the high minimums was really a barrier to many, except for high net worth individuals or investors who were motivated to overcome the barriers, the more traditional modes of investing. Now that we've sort of taken that away, removed a lot of the barriers in um, collaboration with our partners, we're seeing the surge of first-time investors. So just to give you a stat, 20% of the investors that traded on our platform in the first half of this year were first-time investors. Uh, And we just recently, we were... uh, in recognition of this, we were included in Forbes's FinTech 50 list. So this is, um, this is where it's happening, right? So uh, you're really seeing now this growth of this new set of investors who are expecting the services, who are expecting differentiation, who are expecting low cost, real time, all the things that we are, uh, we are supporting. In terms of what the next 10 years look like, I'm going to say this is where I look to our customers. I look to the investors that they're supporting and I expect to learn from them, right? It's a little bit of a, we're at this place where it's almost impossible to predict what are those next generation, the investing experiences that are going to be available five years from now. But what I know, Uh, I can say with certainty is the infrastructure, the capabilities of fractional investing, the embedded finance play is going to unlock many, many different experiences. It's going to help spawn many businesses that are going to be competing for mindshare for this next generation of investors. And through, through the competition, through the innovation, we are going to see unparalleled growth in retail investing. Do you think that most of DriveWell's growth in the future will be driven by economies outside of the U.S.? Or do you believe that the U.S. US economy still has the depth that you could keep expanding here? So we firmly believe that it's going to be an and, right? We absolutely believe there is incredible opportunity to unlock 
retail investing within the US as well as globally, right? The appetite for investing in US brands is, is a constant, right? Whether you're in the US or whether you are outside. So our strategy really is to play across all the markets. So the recent economic condition in the US has been a bit uncertain, and especially in the fintech industry, right? Has that impacted DriveWell's growth plans in any manner? So I'll say this, right? It's We're, of course, entering some hard times, but we've seen no change in the demand for our products. Investing is a long game, and our mission to empower access to investing is more resonant now than ever before. And so we're continuing to grow and invest in our products and infrastructure. Now, we've seen the data that bear this, um, that supports this, that people are continuing to invest. So granted, there are fewer first-time investors that opened accounts for this uh, first half of this year compared to the first half of 2021, with the exception being the millennial demographic. So 46% of our new account openings were from the millennial demographic. And 80% of their trades are fractional. So you can see that the momentum continues. And so we feel pretty confident that this is the time for us to invest and continue to meet the demands of our partners. Talking about momentum, there is no organization in the world that can grow without the right people. So is Drive Wealth hiring? If yes, what is that you look for in potential colleagues? Absolutely, yes. And uh, if your listeners are interested, I would please encourage them to go to drivewolf.com slash careers to take a look at our opportunities. And what we look for really, I think the most important of all is people who are customer centric, who truly want to solve for our customers and our partners, right? Um, I think that's the most important thing, as well as being deeply passionate about our mission, which is to open access to investing globally. And I'll also say an important characteristic that we look for, given the stage of our company and the demands of our business, is we want people who will move with urgency, who are entrepreneurial, and will work really well with everybody in the company. We have a lot of work to do, so we're really looking for people who, who will join us and are passionate about our, our mission. Switching gears a bit and going into our next segment, I would love to get your thoughts on two things, the fintech industry overall and how to think about building the right product. So first is that, in your opinion, what are some trends within the fintech industry that really shape its growth for the next five years? Industries, ultimately, the shape of where they go is set by the users, right? It's ultimately set by the consumers. And I think are the millennial and Gen Z demographic is essentially going to set the trend. They have a high bar for experiences, and they expect it at lower cost, right? And so embedded finance technologies will really make it easy so any business can essentially be a fintech and compete for mindshare in dollars, which will in turn result in more innovation. So we're going to see a lot of new experiences that are going to start to essentially show up uh, that recreates expectations that we may have had in the past for investing. I expect the traditional, the more traditional financial services industries are also going to recognize that there is a need to make sure that they can also offer the experiences, right? And the expectations that the fintechs in many ways have uh, set as the baseline. 
So there'll be a significant investing investments in their technology to upgrade their technology. In terms of the products that we need to build, I think it's really going to be important to recognize that this is going to be an ecosystem play. One company cannot do it all, right? So you're going to have embedded finance players like DriveWealth that build the platforms that make it easy to embed in. We're going to see some really interesting consumer-oriented companies come into being that are going to be building products that are truly solving for their consumer needs. So we're just going to start to see, I think, a lot of new products that emerge across the stack that are all going to be looking at building new experiences and scaling access to more consumers than we're ever, than we're ever participating before. Since you touched about the product part, right? I would love to get your opinion on what makes a great product. And why did you choose to focus on B2B tech products rather than B2C tech products, which is, as some people call it, more sexier? So um, what makes a great product? Ultimately, a great product is a product that people use every day, right? It's as simple as that. If you have delivered on that and people will use it, and yes, you can build it in a sustainable way so it can scale as demand for your product grows, that that makes a great product. It's really quite as simple as that. Of course, the tricky part is figuring out what people need, figuring out how to scale it, and figuring out how to create a business out of it too that is sustainable. It's interesting you you said um, B2C products are sexy. In my experience and, and what I've gravitated to over the course of my career has been B2B products. And the reason for this is quite simple. When you're building B2B products, you have an opportunity to solve not not just one set of use cases for a given customer segment. You get to play across a variety of different use cases, across a variety of different industry segments. So essentially, your problem set is much larger. You're solving for many more of these. But what is also great is you can actually learn from your customers. Right? You can learn from the other businesses who deeply understand their end consumers and help you then shape a platform that can support all the different use cases. So I find it a lot more challenging, a lot more interesting, and it allows you to, to play in so many different worlds. It, you end up creating a diversified portfolio, which can be particularly helpful during times of volatility and change. Right, you are not putting all your eggs in one basket, but you're continuing to stay ahead of the curve because you learn from your partners exactly where the puck is starting to move to. Another thing you mentioned when the interview started was you love that DriveWealth had a good product market fit. How do you identify that? The numbers, the data shows that. Right, we've seen incredible growth. In the number of investors in our revenue last year, we experienced we doubled our growth, and um, we see we have a, a very vibrant pipeline. So we see demand from the market. So really, it it comes down to that you you know when you don't have product market fit, you're out there pushing your product and you are trying to sell a product. When you have product market fit, people are coming to you, and it was clear to me looking at Ride Wealth and recognizing that. They were seeing growth. The growth was coming to them, essentially. The 
customers were coming to them. And by pioneering fractional investing, they had created a new market that simply did not exist before. And there was an opportunity to truly grow that market from a place of strength. For our last segment, what I like to do is introduce you more as a person, as an individual to our listeners. And for that, I like to do a round of rapid fire questions. My first question is, what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? So I came to the US because of Wharton. I married a professor at Wharton. He was an accounting professor. And many of my happiest memories of those early days was eating at your food trucks on Walnut. What are some risky career moves you made and why did you make them? In retrospect, they don't appear risky, but at the time, they were. So in my early years, I switched from chemical engineering to computer science, and I did my master's at Penn, actually. At that time, I had two young children. I'd never written a line of code. I didn't even know what a Boolean was. But I realized then that what I didn't know, I could learn. And that has essentially served as a template for my future uh, risky decisions, including the one that I've just made, right? Switching from Google to a small fintech in brokerage, in the brokerage business. This is a field I knew nothing about when I joined. But what I know now better than I did in my early years is what I don't know I can learn and I can learn from others and I can bring others in who know something better than I do and complement my skill set. So it's nothing is really risky when you're working with other people and building together. And I find that these moves just make life more fun, right? They're more challenging, they're growth opportunities, and they cause you to recognize that there's no risk that you can't overcome. Given your love for Penn, given your love for learning, would you ever consider becoming a professor at Penn and taking a class? If yes, what class would you teach? Oh, teaching a class. I love learning. I've spent, um, (laughs) yes, I seem to have... uh, I seem to spend the first half of my life just doing that. And um, I've realized now that you can also learn on the job, right? So my my time learning in educational establishments has come to a close. In terms of teaching, I um, that's a great question. I find that I teach people every day. I learn and teach from people every day. I learn from my teams. I teach uh, my peers. Uh, So in some ways, I feel like that's what you do in in a job. If I were to teach at Penn, I probably would teach product management. When I was at Penn, there was no field called product management. There was no degree. It's a little bit of an art. A lot of the field has evolved by doing and by experiences. And I feel like that was that's probably an area that I think I know something about now. Enough to at least um, teach a lecture or two, maybe not a whole class. And will you teach that at Wharton or teach that at a school of engineering? I know I'm putting in a spot here, but I want to see which you love more. Um, you know, I teach them in both. <laughs> I, I'm a Stanford uh, business grad, so I'd also go to Stanford and teach it there. But I, um, I, I loved Penn. I think Penn is a great institution. It's, um, and, and Wharton is an amazing school. I think it's very clear for uh, it's very clear in retrospect that what Wharton did really well was really build competency in finance and help students go out into Wall Street and other other avenues and be very successful. And as I've said, now we have with fintech, 
you don't just you don't just have to go to Wall Street. You can pretty much go and build a business anywhere. And I think um, the education at Wharton really sets you up for that incredibly well. You joined Google in 2006, right? When it wasn't Google as we know it today. How do you think have startups evolved when compared to what Google was in 2006 and a comparative site startup is today? What are some key differences that you see? I think it's easier now to build, to, to start a startup. And in many ways, big tech has created the, has made it easy. So Google had to build its machines from scratch, as an example. Now you can get access to their servers through Google Cloud. It doesn't take a large team. It can take a few engineers now to build an app when you can rely on cloud infrastructure and third-party or embedded embeddable services. So just to give you an illustration, one of our customers built an investing service in their app with a team of just three engineers. So I think it's in many ways the barriers to to starting a technology startup are definitely lower now than they were back in 2006. So I don't think you have to be the size of Google now to get the impact of companies like Google. You can work with others in the field and in the industry, uh, and you can work with technology players to still deliver on the impact. If you could go back in time, imagine you're back doing your MBA at Stanford. Is there anything you would do differently? And the second part to that is, what advice would you have for people who are just starting or graduating from their MBA and about to enter the workforce? I think hindsight is twenty twenty, but I think I would um, I would tell my younger self, don't worry too much about getting it right, right, getting it perfect, and and just be willing to go in maybe a little unprepared and be comfortable learning as you go. In terms of advice, I would give uh, I would give the graduates of Wharton. I, I, I mean, the same advice, like, don't, don't worry so much. You're entering a world that is, that is on the cusp of so many new things. The possibilities are endless. And, um, and you're going to see volatility. There will be ups and downs. Technology changes are so fast. Um, so you can't really forecast too much. You can't set yourself up with a 30-year-old, 30-year career plan. So stay flexible, right? Go, go with the flow and, and be open to opportunities. But know that the education that you've had and the network that you've built at Wharton is going to hold you right through your career. On that note, I'll let you get back to our guy three. But thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you, Tarang. It was a pleasure and good luck. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Walk in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.